It's complicated. It's complicated because you have a family member that's gay. It's complicated because your best friend at work is gay. It's complicated because you had a same-sex attraction once or now. It's complicated because you love God and people. It's complicated because of what you believe the Bible says about homosexuality. It's complicated because maybe you like everything else the Bible says except homosexuality. It's complicated because you have wise Christian friends who seem to view this issue very differently. It's complicated because some churches seem to draw a big line in the sand and stand against homosexuality and gay people. And other churches on the other line of the sand seem to celebrate it. It's complicated. Is there any issue for our generation, for our time, more complicated than the issue of homosexuality? Because it's not an issue. It's about people. And your questions revealed the complexities that you're wrestling with and you're struggling with. We got questions like, you know, what does the Bible say about being gay? What does the church, where's the church stand on the issue? How am I supposed to love my gay family member even if I disagree with them or their lifestyle? Um, can my gay son or gay daughter go to heaven? Will they go to heaven? Is it even wrong for me to love them? And some people ask, you know, why does it even matter? Why does God seem to care about this? So I just want you to know it's complicated. And so what I would ask for you today, I, I hope that you will stick with me. Because at some point during the message today, you may disagree with something I say. Here, here's what I would ask for you to do. Would you give me the grace to get to the end? Would you give me the grace to get to the end? Because if you disagree with one thing I say kind of in one section, you might find that about five or ten minutes later that you, you agree, you finally, once you understand what I'm trying to say of what I believe that the Bible teaches. But I want to just be, you know, really clear about this, that I am certain good people in our church disagree on this issue. I'm certain good people in this church disagree on this issue. I'm taking what I believe is a biblical approach, but there will be others who see things differently. And you might. You might. I, I believe this is an important issue. It's complicated. It's important. It's important for the church to speak into in our modern world because the rest of the world is talking about it. But can I just affirm to you that it's not a core doctrine we're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus or the atonement of sins and the sufficiency of the cross and by grace alone through faith alone. Those are our core doctrines. Those are our core uh, issues and our core beliefs to gay people that may be in the room or might be watching or those that are dealing with same-sex attraction. I want to tell you something. I love you. 
and I see you. And I don't want for you anything that I don't want for anyone else. Here's what I want for you. Same thing I want for everyone. I want for you to find life in Christ. That's it. I have no agenda but Jesus. That's it. So I'm going to tackle this in four ways, okay? Four kind of sections. The first is I, I want to talk about what the Bible says. We're going to look at the scriptures. I want to talk about where the church gets it wrong. I think the church has done some damage, the big C church. Um, I want to talk about where the world gets it wrong. I think the world doesn't quite understand how the church might view this issue. And then I want to talk about where do we go from here. So let's talk about what the Bible says. When I teach on homosexuality, I never uh, teach from the Old Testament for a couple of reasons. Uh, most of the teaching in the Old Testament when it comes to homosexuality is found in Leviticus. And it's got some pretty strong language. It uses words like abomination. Now, I'm not afraid of strong language. I'm not afraid of the word of God. But those verses have been used to bully gay people for a long time. And maybe you have felt like that. But the, the, the most important reason that I usually rarely teach from it when I'm teaching on this issue is because as Christians who have found freedom in Christ, we don't follow Levitical law. Because the little Levitical law has a lot of things that Christians no longer do because we're not bound to it anymore. Levitical law says you shouldn't eat pork, and I had barbecue Friday night. It was delicious. Come on, amen. Love barbecue. Levitical law says you shouldn't eat shellfish, and we love shrimp. Levitical law says you shouldn't wear fabrics made of two different materials, and if you've got on a polycotton shirt, you broke it. So it can just confuses people when you say, well, you're telling me that these things are in Levitical law and they're an abomination, but you're not doing these other things in all these 613 laws. We believe Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. It's not that it's bad. It's not that it's dead. It's not that we ignore it. It's fulfilled in Christ. We believe the law pointed to a standard that was revealed when Christ came to earth. Jesus fulfilled the law. In fact, another word for the Old Testament is Old covenant and then another word for the new testament is we have a new covenant and the levitical law is not our ethic anymore for how to behave we have a better ethic a new ethic we have a new covenant so i want to talk about in that new covenant in the new testament how did jesus and how did paul address how we in the modern church in the church on the fulfilled side of the law, how are we supposed to deal with this issue of homosexuality? And you'd be amazed that even 2,000 years ago, we think this is a new thing. We think this is a modern issue. You'd be amazed at how much of an issue it was in their world. The Apostle Paul talks about it in three uh, different books that he wrote, but I want to zero in in Romans 1 and 2. So let's just get right to it. If you don't have a Bible, you want to study this at home, you need to read this on your own. Trust the Word of God. Dig into it. We've got free Bibles we want to give to you on the way out. And if you're watching at home, uh, man, listen, email us. We'll, we'll mail you one if you need a hard copy. This is what it says in Romans 1, beginning in verse, uh, verse 24. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. So basically said they put their own, the ideas, the creature, us, our bodies, they decided that we, that whatever you want to do with your body is more important than whatever the creator says. It's a, it's a exchanging the truth of God for a lie that it's not all about making the body happy. And then Paul says this, for this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural or intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and the things that should not be done. So Paul, I mean, it's pretty amazing, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and he, he gives a pretty explicit explanation about homosexual activity and behavior. And he describes them as things that should not be done. Now, that section seems like a lot of finger pointing at the gay community. And maybe you feel that way if, if you are deal with same-sex attraction, you consider yourself gay. I, it feels like a lot of finger pointing, but it is almost like Paul senses that. And if you just read that portion of it, you will miss so much of what Paul's saying to all of us. Because Paul then, he, he says, whoa, 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 hold a minute. He goes on in the next verse. They were filled, talking about people who turn their backs on God, which you're going to find out is all of us, with every kind. Because like right now, that just sort of felt like he was pointing at one kind, right? Didn't it feel that way? He was just kind of pointing at one, fine, one kind. He was kind of wagging his finger at one group. Paul discerns, turns to point his finger at every group. Every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, and malice, full of envy. You ever been a little envious of a promotion somebody got? Envious of how much money someone has? Envious of how good somebody else's kid is doing in school? Murder, strife, deceit. You ever been just a little deceitful? Craftiness. You were five once, and you were a little crafty. They are gossips. Now it's getting personal. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, which every one of us were when we were teenagers at different times, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So he, he basically just lumps like, hey, if you think you're better than all the people who are doing all these other acts, which he used some pretty strong language, like degrading, debasing. If you think you're better, let me just lump you in. Let me just tell you that all of us do, the, all of us do a lot of things. And he says, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. If you have ever gossiped, you deserve to die. That's all of us. If you've ever been envious, you've ever, Paul just basically saying, if you have sinned in any way, and that's all of us, who deserve desire, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Paul puts a lot of things in the same category, a lot of sins. And he says, we would not, we would not applaud 
anyone that does any of those sins, we would never applaud someone's gossip. We would never applaud someone of being envious. We would never applaud someone of being rebellious toward their parents. We would never applaud someone for stirring up strife in the office or around the Thanksgiving table. You would think that's ridiculous. And Paul says, and we wouldn't applaud homosexual behavior. But it's all together. Now, you can, you can almost feel like the people who don't struggle with same-sex attraction or the people who, who wouldn't consider themselves gay kind of puffing up their chest. And Paul gets right to it. Listen, listen to what comes next. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are. Would you say that with me? Whoever you are. That's me. That's you. When you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. When you gossip, it is the same thing as homosexual behavior. When you are envious, Paul says, it is the same thing as homosexual behavior. When you are rebellious towards your parents. It is the same thing. You are doing the very same things. And then Paul says this quote. Listen, tell me if this doesn't sound like what we have experienced in the church sometimes with the gay community. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. We know that this is based on the truth, and that's why we're judging. Does that sound like the church sometimes? And then Paul says, do you imagine whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself because they're the same thing will escape the judgment of God? Do you think you will escape the judgment of God because your sins aren't public and hot-button issues? Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God because your sins aren't linked to your sexuality? Is what Paul asked? Paul says that we're all under judgment, and we all deserve to die. We all deserve to die, and somehow God has sent his son Jesus for us all. This is why the church ought to be the place that a teenager can say, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. This is why the church ought to be a place who adult, where adults who experience same-sex attraction can come and work out their faith. This ought not to alarm us. This ought not to surprise us. We ought to respond not with judgment because we have sins that we're dealing with and struggling with too. We ought to respond with compassion to those who are struggling. Because then Paul, listen to this hammer he closes it with. Or do you, he's talking to those of us who don't struggle with same-sex attraction. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Does it bother you that God is gracious and compassionate and forgiving in dealing with people for homosexuality? Does it bother you that God has grace for their sins just like he has grace for your sins? Does that bother you, heterosexual people? Is God's grace big enough for people who sin differently than you? 
or do what a word or do you despise the riches of his kindness i don't want to be known for despising the riches of god's kindness now i know what conservative christians are thinking right now yeah but yeah, yeah, but oh, yeah, I'm all about Christ. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but. And then Paul is almost like he turns it back to the other audience. And he says, he asks a question to everyone that is so important. Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't you understand the purpose of God's kindness? It's meant to lead you to repentance. If you consider yourself gay, I'm not here to judge you. We're all under God's judgment. We all deserve God's death. But this, uh, deserve death for our sin, but this holy God sent his son to be holiness for us in our place to die for us to take the judgment that we deserve that's called sin that's called mercy that's called grace that's called kindness and he didn't send his son Jesus to applaud our sin or to affirm our sin he sent his kindness his grace to lead us to repentance, to confession. How can I, how can I, all right, if you're in the gay community, how can I know that passage in Romans 1 and 2 and just say, you know, it's no big deal, love is love, I just want you to be happy. How can I as a teacher of God's word just say that when the truth is all of our sin is a really big deal It's a really big deal, and love isn't love. Love is displayed in a crucified and bloody Savior on a cross, and God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be saved and and sanctified and made holy and redeemed and righteous in his sight. That's what he wants. It's a big deal. What did Jesus say about it? Jesus actually never talked about homosexuality, but he did talk about marriage. In fact, one time there were some religious leaders and they were asking Jesus about marriage and divorce and about relationships and kind of what's your opinion, Jesus? And they were trying to get get a gotcha. I love this. This is one of my favorite Jesus quotes in the whole Bible because all these religious scholars and leaders are asking about this. And Jesus, in Matthew 19, he responds with this. Jesus says, have you not read, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female. Have you not read that the one who made them in the beginning have made them male and female? Now he's asking these religious scholars, uh, religious leaders, and Jesus goes, you're a scholar, right? You're a, um, you're a religious, oh yeah, yeah, we're a scholar. Um, have, you, have you made it so far as chapter 1? Have you not read? Have you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female? Have you not read that? Oh, yeah, yeah, we read that. Okay. And then Jesus said, for this reason, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the reason. The reason is because that's the way God designed it and created it in the beginning. This is so significant because Jesus had no problem saying, you have heard it said, but I say. And no problem. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit to murder, but I say even if you're angry at somebody. You heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you that even if you lust. You've heard it said that you should have an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but I say you should turn the other cheek. Jesus had no problem taking what had been said and what had been read for thousands of years and kind of inverting it, upping the ante, kind of putting his own new spin on it. And Jesus says, when it comes to marriage, I don't have a new spin. It's the same way it's been since it's been since the beginning. One man, one woman for life. You said the disciples are like, like, what if you fall out of love like in 25 years? It doesn't matter. This is the way it's supposed to be. And actually, some of his disciples, some of his disciples say, Jesus, that's a hard teaching. It sounds like it might be better not to marry. And do you know how Jesus responds to them? He says, Not everyone can accept this teaching. I have a question for you. Can you accept Jesus' teaching? And then Jesus, because they're like, well, maybe I should just stay single. And Jesus almost is like, that's an option. That's an option. And Jesus says, you know, let me explain it this way. There are those who have been eunuchs from birth, meaning that they have uh, some kind of birth disorder that has made them not being able to be in a sexual relationship. There's some people like that. There are those that have been eunuchs, made eunuchs by some other people. that They have been made celibate. This was common practice in the ancient world for servants to be made as eunuchs. And then he says there's one more group. There are those who have chosen to live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. So there are really two options when it comes to, uh, for the Christian in faithfulness according to what Jesus says. Marriage between one man and one woman and celibacy and singleness. That's it. Marriage between one man and one woman and celibacy and singleness. Now there will be some people who would say that those passages don't mean what we've always thought they meant about sexuality and homosexuality in specific. There will be some people that would say, um, you know, uh, they didn't know our culture. Those were abuse, talking about abusive relationships. They weren't talking about loving, lifelong, committed, same-sex relationships. So I went to uh, Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and I got to take New Testament from a professor named Luke Timothy Johnson. Dr. Johnson is one of the world's uh, most renowned New Testament scholars, unbelievable New Testament teacher, unbelievable uh, at understanding, interpreting the context, inter interpreting uh, what it means. He would also be in the affirming camp. He would also be for full inclusion of homosexual persons. He would also be for affirming of gay marriage, affirming of gay clergy. He would be fully in the affirmation. But let me, can I just let you know 
Here's a quote from Dr. Luke Timothy and Johnson, someone who affirms, is in the affirming and full inclusion when it comes to homosexuality, but also someone uh, who is a great New Testament scholar. Listen to what he says. I just want to read it to you. I think it important to state clearly we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal to the weight of our own experience. So what Dr. Johnson says, someone who understands the context of the New Testament far better than me says, if we're going to be affirming, then we have to ignore the straightforward commands of Scripture. And I so appreciate Dr. Johnson's intellectual honesty. But man, I just sure can't go there. You have to do some biblical gymnastics to say that it says something other than what it actually says. And I don't think you want a pastor who is reinterpreting the scriptures based on his own experience or choosing which ones that we should hold as authority and which ones we shouldn't, depending on how he feels. It's dangerous ground. It's a dangerous place to be, and I don't think it's where we want to be. For some of you, that's where you are, though. You have gay family members and friends, and those experiences have changed how you thought about this issue. And I just want to tell you, like, I don't want to fight with you, argue with you. I can tell you this. As I have grown as a disciple of Jesus, he has changed my mind about a lot of things. But this would be the question I would ask anyone. If the New Testament isn't our standard for sexual ethics in the church, then what is? then what is? Then, guys, we're just making it up as we're going along. If the New Testament isn't the standard for sexual ethics in the church, then what is? We're just making it up as we're going along. And the question appears on the screen. There we go. Just in time. Great job, Jake and James and Debbie. Good job. Y'all are like in the intensity of the subject, and they're just like, Tech problems, tech problems, tech problems. The Lord knew we needed a little lighthearted moment. Can I just close it out by just kind of telling you a few things, how the church gets it wrong, okay? I want to talk about how the church gets it wrong, how the world gets it wrong, and where do we go from here. For gay persons, I want to tell you something. I am so sorry for the way that you have often been made to feel. Before the church has wanted to tell people, uh, gay people, about Jesus, we've wanted to tell you that you're wrong or that we disagree with you, and that's got to stop. We don't lead with rules with any other group but the gay community. And this is not a book of rules. This is a book about a relationship with a God who loves you unconditionally and wants what's best for you and wants a relationship with you. We need, if we're going to reach the gay community, be in ministry to and with the gay community, we have to lead with Jesus. And if you are gay, I want you to listen to me. I don't want you to be straight. I want for you what I want for everyone. I want you to surrender your life to Christ. Here's where we've gotten it wrong, okay? We have treated this as separate from all other sins, 
All right, here's basically kind of two ways to think about kind of our life in Christ. We kind of have our salvation moment when we come to Christ, when we're saved, we, you know, faith alone, grace alone. And then we have what's called sanctification, which is learning in discipleship, obedience, walking with God. And here's, this is what I believe. I believe a mistake that the church has made is we have taken this issue and we have turned it into a salvation issue when it is not a salvation issue, it is a sanctification issue. We have turned this into a sanctification, uh, into a salvation issue, and we don't do this with any other, el- with any other issue. We tell, we tell gay people, you have to repent of this sin and never do it again. And you, we don't do that with gossipers, like right before they get in the baptism water. Listen, you can't gossip ever again. All right? We don't do that with people who are greedy. Listen, you can't be greedy ever again. We don't do it with people who are living together in heterosexual relationships. Like you got to move out tonight and you can't sleep together ever again. We understand that there is going to be a discipleship process. There is going to be a sanctification process. And I know what people say, like, well, what if they don't believe that they're wrong? I know that's what everybody thinks. What if the, can I just ask you a question? Can I just ask you a question? How many sins has the Lord revealed to you years after you came to Christ that you didn't originally know were sins? Some of you know my story, and I, I've told a little bit of it from up here. I was saved when I was eight. And I grew up in a great church, and I believe it was real. I loved the Lord. I know I believed in Jesus. When I was about 18 or 19, I got in some Bible studies. I got in a community at college that was much more diverse than the hometown I grew up. And I, God convicted my heart that I was a racist. And I didn't know that the jokes I laughed at and the jokes I told were wrong and the words I said were wrong and the attitudes I said were wrong and and the lack of love that I showed to people of different races than me. I didn't know that I was, do I believe that I was saved when I was eight years old? Absolutely. And as I dug into his word and got into a community of faith, I figured out that there were sins. And I've just got some news for you. I've got some other ones that the Lord's still working on me. And I bet you do too. It's just a hunch. It's just a hunch. I mean, we expect that we're going to have to disciple people. We expect that we're going to have to shepherd people. We repent that we are sinners. It's very important. But we're going to have to disciple them after that. And in the words of Jake Davis, one of our teaching pastors, our college and creative pastor, if we don't baptize sinners here, we're going to have a hard time finding people to baptize. We have a hard time finding people to baptize. We're going to baptize sinners, and we're going to walk with them, and then we're going to disciple them. Let me ask you a question. How far down the discipleship journey does someone have to be to step foot in the atrium? Can they be at step one? How far down the discipleship journey does someone have to come up to the front and receive the grace in the body of Christ broken for them and the blood of Christ shed for them? Can they be at step one? How many steps down the discipleship path do they have to be to come to the waters of baptism? Can they be at step one? Didn't Jesus die for us at step zero? It's not a salvation issue. It's a sanctification. Now, let me tell you about where the world's got it wrong. The world gets it wrong on a different side of the same coin. The world wants us to treat this separate from all other sins. 
And we, though I believe it is correctly put in the sanctification, the world has asked the church to take it out of the sanctification and just ignore it. And no other group is asking the church, no other, uh, no other idea is asking the church to say, we want you to think differently about an issue that you fought for 2,000 years. No other group, no, no one else is telling the church that they need to think about the way they change uh, any other behavior. And let me be clear about this. This is about behavior. It's not about whether or not you see yourself as gay or straight. It is about aligning my behavior and my actions and thoughts with his word. It's about a willingness to be discipled. We all have a sinful nature. We all have a sinful nature. And we're all born into sin. We're all born into sin. And it doesn't matter if you are heterosexual, you can have sexual behaviors that are against the will of God. And if you are homosexual, you can have sexual behaviors that are against the will of God. This is about behaviors. We are all born into the sin. I was born selfish. Can I just confess that to you? I've been good at it since I was four. You might ha- it might be you too. And when a selfish thought comes to my mind, I have to surrender it to Jesus and go, ah, it is so baked into my core to be selfish, but Lord, I know you want me to be selfless. You want me to be selfless. And I've just got a hunch that that's going to be a lifelong journey for me, that I'm going to have to fight this selfishness that Christ has won victory over. And man, I'm better at it now than when I was four. And I'm better at it now than when I was 30 because Christ has more of my heart. But listen, this is what this is about. This is about saying that I have to surrender to Jesus. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The world has said that life is about self-fulfillment. And Jesus said that life found in him is about self-denial. We should all anticipate and expect that in our relationship with Jesus, we will have to deny ourselves. Discipleship is life long self-denial and you won't just have to deny yourself with sex it is just one of them there is a thousand other ways that God wants every single one of us to deny ourselves submit ourselves to him and we have believed this lie we have believed this lie that uh, that fulfillment and self-identity are found in sexual orientation, sexuality, or romantic relationships. No earthly relationship can fulfill you heterosexual or homosexual. We believe that our identity is found in Christ and fulfillment is found in him. And shame on the church that we have made an idol of marriage. Because marriage won't fulfill you in heterosexual either. Your wife, your husband, they make a bad savior. We got one Savior. Our identity is found in Christ. And in our sexuality, there are boundaries. Christian marriage between one man and one woman, celibacy and singleness. For heterosexuals, for homosexuals. And I didn't make the rules, but I trust the rules because I believe that the ruler is good. And the ruler sent his son to die for me. And even when I don't like them, I trust them. So, where do we go from here? Y'all okay? I, this is a little bit longer today. It's a lot of words. Where do we go from here? 
is simple. We invite and equip people to follow Jesus. That's what we do. It's not my job to change people. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. It is my job to teach the Bible and set parameters for church leadership and everything else in the middle will be messy. We are not going to be a church that asks you if you're gay when you walk in the door or shun you if you are. If you want to find a church like that, if you want to find a church that draws a hard line in the sand against the gay community, you can find a church like that. I think you'll have found a church that doesn't take Jesus' command to love their neighbor as their self seriously. And we're not going to be a church that affirms homosexual behavior. And if you want to find a church that affirms gay marriage and affirms homosexual activity and behavior, then you can find a church like that. But I think you'll have found a church that doesn't take the word of God and its authority seriously and the issue of discipleship seriously. We're going to be a church that takes the whole book seriously. The whole book. And that means we have to be committed to walking with people in relationship with Christ. The whole book. I want to just close with a couple of things. The local church ought to be the place where celibate gay Christians can find the family that their obedience to Scripture demands that they give up. If you are a married Christian, are you willing to tell a celibate gay brother or sister in our church, you come, you come to Christmas morning at our house every year. Because what you're telling them is that they have to give up family for the rest of their lives. Are you, telling, are you committed to that? You spend Thanksgiving at our house every year because we're family. The nuclear family is not the ideal of family in the Bible. That's unbiblical and it's hogwash. The body of Christ is the family of God. And are we willing, are we willing to say, well, man, we want to walk with you. We want to pray with you. Would heterosexual Christians give gay people room in the church to struggle and wrestle with their faith the way someone probably gave you room to wrestle and struggle with your faith? Is there enough room for that? Is God's grace big enough for that? Or do you despise the riches of his grace? I'm not saying that's easy, and I'm not telling you that if, if you're part of the gay community that that's easy and that the, the call to celibacy or the call to walking with Jesus in that way was easy, but I'm telling you this, I think Mountaintop is the kind of church that wants to be that kind of church. I think we want to be the kind of church that says, we're going to walk with you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray with you. We're going to cry with you. You text me. You call me. You meet. Let's have coffee. Whatever it takes for us to walk because we are in this together. That's what it means to equip people to follow Jesus. And if you've got a gay family member and you're like, How do I, what do I do? Love them, show them the light of Christ in you, and trust the Holy Spirit. You know, how do I love them? Here's how I would tell you I love them. 
You remember when Jesus said this? You may not know this verse, but it's, it's where this new covenant came in. He said, this is a new command I give you. This is how everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you will remind your gay family member that they're gay every time you hang out with them. It's not very funny, is it? This is how you'll know my disciples. If you love them the way I have loved you. If you love them the way I have loved you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we're going to love people, and we're going to cling tight to the word of God. I don't tell you something, it will be messy in the middle because it's complicated. But we have a God who turns messy into a message. We're going to close with a song called Make Room. And I think it's for all of us today. If you are consider yourself part of the gay community, uh, the words of this song are powerful. It says, I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. That's the question I would ask. Any person who considers themselves gay, who is seriously seeking Jesus, will you make room for Jesus to do whatever he wants in your life? Whatever he wants. Not what you want, what he wants. For those of us that are in the heterosexual community, would you, would you make room for God to do whatever he wants in your life to figure out how to love, reach out to our community that might be different than us, that might struggle with different sins than us, extend them the grace and help equip people to follow Jesus? It's a powerful song because it's not just a song. It's a prayer. So let's stand and sing and pray together.